Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, July 14th, 2017. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, who joins me today from his office in Manhattan. Welcome back to Beyond the Book, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So let's open with several copyright-related stories, a topic you always enjoy covering, Andrew. In Canada this week, a court determined whether a university's e-reserves program was fair or foul. And what did it rule? Yeah, that's right. So this week, a Canadian court decided a case that, you know, it's essentially kind of the the great northern version of the Georgia State University e-reserves case. But it's a little more than e-reserves here. And, and that case is called Access Copyright versus York University. And it ruled for the publisher side in that case, finding that York University's digital materials guidelines, which permitted copying up to 10% of a work for course materials, were not covered under fair use. Uh, the judge in the case wrote, that, and I'm quoting here, it's evident that York created the guidelines and operated under them primarily to obtain for free that which they had previously paid for. And I can just imagine officials at the Association of American Publishers here shouting at their newspapers when they saw that, saying, see, see, they get it. <laughs> We're going to have a deeper look at this next week in PW, what's going on in Canada. But I'll just make a few points here. First, the concept of digital course readings uh, is more limited in the U.S. when it comes to e-reserves than it it is in Canada under this decision. So the, the issues in the two cases, GSU and Access Copyright, are not necessarily comparable. Also, uh, the Access Copyright case comes amidst a copyright law revision, the Copyright Modernization Act in Canada, which educational publishers say has been disastrous for them. We've, we've covered that a bit uh, in the past here at PW. So it's going to be interesting to see how this decision was going to affect that law, which undergoes a mandatory review beginning this fall. Uh, and finally, this is a perfect time to tell readers that in two weeks, the GSU case is going to be argued in front of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So expect more to come on that case in a couple of weeks. And also, I just want to give a hat tip to the Canadian publishers. Uh, their association offered up a really balanced press release after uh, this decision came down. There was no spiking the ball. Uh, it's clear they recognize that their customers are here. So I just want to say well done to the Canadian publishers. I know this is a really contentious case and things can run hot when it comes to copyright issues, but it says a lot that you can put out a release that at least uh, is pretty measured and balanced, which I thought they did. And and a bit to the south in the United States, the copyright also made the news not in court, but in Congress. And this regards the efforts to make the Register of Copyrights in the U.S. a presidential appointee. So what's the news there? Are we happening or are we not happening? <laughs> Yeah, so this is another story I've been running down uh, for next week. And after passing the House in April and having a Senate version, which is uh, S-1010, Senate Bill 1010, introduced quickly, it now appears that uh, a bill to make the Register of Copyrights an independently presidentially appointed position isn't drawing much interest in the Senate. Uh, in a post on the TechDirt website this week, Mike Masnick reported that the bill appears to be dead, but I'm not sure that's true at all. Uh, things go quiet on the Senate side all the time and then resurface. So I, I wouldn't say that it's dead at this point. Um, but I have been asking around on the Hill, and as you might imagine, the Senate has other things on their minds these days. But what we do know is that the bill was referred to a different committee in the Senate. It went to administration, not to the Judiciary Committee. And that's because while judiciary covers copyright law, this bill is not a copyright bill. It's really just about the origin 
org chart at the Library of Congress. And remember, this was an issue, too, with the House bill. There was a dispute in the beginning about whether this should be the House Admin Committee or the House Judiciary Committee. But apparently, there was some horse trading that was done to let Judiciary move their bill in the House. That appears not to yet have happened in the Senate. But here's the really interesting part of this. As Masnick reported this week, and I've later chased down, now chased down, in the Appropriation Committee's latest bill, the committee actually praises, the Appropriations Committee praises the Library of Congress for the work it's done so far modernizing the Copyright Office. Now, modernizing the Copyright Office was supposed to be the very reason for removing the Register of Copyrights or making the Register of Copyrights an independent position. But it appears that some people on the Appropriations Committee didn't get that memo. So that could have an effect on the fate of the bill going forward. Stay tuned. When Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese has a story of good faith and fair dealing that turns, well, dangerous. I'm Christopher Keneally. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, July 14th, 2017, and Andrew Albanese joins me with the week's news from the world of books. And on this Bastille Day, Andrew, it's fitting to speak about revolutionary figures, whether real or self-styled ones. And this week, Milo Yiannopoulos did what he said he was going to do, and he filed suit against his former publisher, Simon & Schuster, after they had canceled his book contract. You've got a piece on the PW site now about the case, great juicy details there. So uh, what's your take on it? Can he win this suit? Uh, Can he win it? Um, The answer is yes and no, Uh, as unsatisfactory as that may sound. Can he win this case at trial? Uh, Probably not. But he may already have won just by filing the suit, and I'll explain why. First, the suit itself. Now, our listeners are probably aware of Milo Yiannopoulos and his threats to sue Simon & Schuster, and he did actually file, as he claimed he would, that $10 million suit, alleging that the publisher wrongfully and in bad faith terminated his contract to publish the book Dangerous. Now, our listeners may also know that in comments to the media, both in PW and elsewhere, he's made the suit sound like a free speech or a defamation case that, you know, he, he endured reputational damage by SNS or that there was a plot to silence conservative voices. But in the case itself, there are just two causes of action, breach of contract and breach of good faith and fair dealing. Now, lawyers told me that the breach of contract claim faces an obvious hurdle, and that is that a legally terminated contract can't be breached. And court filings show that SNS did terminate the contract, deeming Milo's manuscript unacceptable. Milo's got to keep the first eighty grand of his $255,000 advance. Uh, that was due on signing. And they reverted all rights to Milo, uh, discharged him of any further obligations, and then Milo published the book himself on July 4th. He since has said that he sold like 105,000 copies, at least wholesale numbers. Nielsen puts those sales actually at around 20,000 copies, and you can read about that on the PW site as well. 
but it's the second cause of action in the case where the, the real question comes in. Did SNS actually terminate the contract legally? Uh, so lawyers told me that the complaint is pretty well done, and it sets up this factual dispute over the reason why the deal was canceled. And that dispute, lawyers say, could at very least keep the suit from being immediately dismissed. Another lawyer agreed, told me that Milo had a very plausible bad faith termination argument if it can be shown that the termination actually had nothing to do with the book that he wrote, with the manuscript he had turned in and was working on, and had more to do with the collateral damage that SNS was being caused. Now, remember, SNS had faced an author revolt, a lot of bad press, and even an economic boycott after the deal. So there certainly was some pressure on Simon & Schuster. So specifically in the contract, Milo's attorneys contend that the publisher could only terminate the deal if he delivered a manuscript that was not editorially acceptable or if the lawyers deemed it to be obscene or libelous. They argue that phone calls showed that his editor, Mitchell Ivers, was satisfied with the editorial progress of the book and SNS uh, marketing and publicity was, was working away. And then Milo made his famous comments about, you know, well, pedophilia. And at that point, right after he was ditched from CPAC and ousted from Breitbart News, SNS canceled the contract without warning under the false pretext they claim that the manuscript was unsatisfactory. Now, certainly, the timing of the cancellation raises questions, but proving that Simon & Schuster acted in bad faith and declaring the book unacceptable is going to be a high bar to clear. Lawyers tell me that the contract states that SNS has a pretty wide berth uh, when it comes to rejecting a work that is, quote, not acceptable to it. And while some places in the contract tie rejection of the manuscript to editorial reason, there's simply no definition of, of what those editorial reasons might be or what's acceptable. None of that is defined in the contract. So that's That's all going to be in the eye of the beholder. So absent a smoking gun, it appears that it's going to be really hard for Milo to prove that SNS acted in bad faith when they called the manuscript unacceptable. And one thing I'd point out here, too, we're talking about Milo Yiannopoulos, right? The most hated man on the Internet, banned from Twitter, booted from CPAC, pushed out from Breitbart. Even if Simon & Schuster signed him up because he was provocative, it does seem kind of likely that SNS attorneys are going to be able to convince a judge that, you know, they had a little bit of cause there to find the book unpublishable. Well, you know, this is fairly standard operating procedure in publishing. They really, publishers can pretty much choose not to publish a book for any reason they like, but that leaves uh, Milo out there uh, beating his chest and making quite a noise about the book, which is only going to help him in sales. But what about this $10 million that he's asking for? How realistic is that should his case uh, uh, go in his direction? Yeah, that's a really interesting part of this. So, in a nutshell, not realistic at all. In fact, that's not happening. While Milo has like framed this suit in the media as a kind of defamation suit and asked for damages, in reality, he it's a run-of-the-mill contract dispute that he filed in the Supreme Court of the state of New York. And as such, the remedies here are limited. So, lawyers that I spoke to all agree that if he was to prevail, he would merely be entitled to, quote, the benefit of his bargain. Um, so, if there's no firm basis for calculating future profits, the courts and contract cases don't award speculative damages. So most lawyers told me that it would be a function of the amount of money he might have made in an SNS contract versus the money he made uh, self-publishing, or more specifically, the amount of money he was paid by Simon & Schuster, the 80 grand versus the 255,000 he was owed. So Milo was probably looking at best here 
at collecting $175,000, which is the difference between the $80,000 and the $255,000 promised him if he wins. So why ask for $10 million? Well, you have to ask for something in these contracts. So you may as well set your ceiling high, right? Why limit yourself? And let's make let's be clear, you know, that $10 million, it makes for a lot better headline than $175,000. It sure does, Andrew. It's got us talking about it here. So, so what's uh, the take on the next uh, few steps in this case? Now, he's got to survive a, a motion to dismiss. He actually has to wind up in a courtroom. What's the chance that'll happen? And then once he's there, what do you see? Yeah. So in the next 30 days or so, SNS is going to reply to the suit and they are surely going to seek to have it dismissed. Um, but like each lawyer that I spoke to told me, there's a really good chance that Milo's case, because there's a fact question here, is going to survive a motion to dismiss. And if it does, just imagine how brutal the discovery phase in this case could be, much less an actual trial. Simon & Schuster's decision to publish Milo was a headline-grabbing, controversial topic. We talked about it quite a bit on this show. Surely, there must have been many frank conversations about Milo, about the deal throughout the company at Simon & Schuster at all levels, right up to Carolyn Reedy, uh, the CEO, for the, the, the two and a half short months he was under contract. And as tough a public relations situation as signing Milo was for SNS at times, this lawsuit could be worse. I mean, just picture the depositions, the emails, you name it. It's going to be brutal. And all of that, to me, means settlement. <laughs> it cries out for a settlement, right? Uh, on the other hand, this is exactly the kind of PR that Milo wants. He needs this kind of publicity to sell dangerous. Simon & Schuster officials have even acknowledged as much, calling the suit publicity-driven. So dragging this out for a few more headlines would probably be huge for Milo, You know, capped by this undisclosed, eventual confidential settlement that would also allow him to claim victory. So dollar for dollar, this is great publicity for Milo. He couldn't pay for this publicity elsewhere. But one final note, my own opinion on this, is I, I, I just look at this and I really think SNS has messed up. You know, if you're going to make the decision to get into the Milo business, you kind of got to see it through, come what may. I mean, you're either for his right to speak or you're not. You can't be drawing these arbitrary lines about things you can do or, or can't do. Um, you know, Milo was who he was before they signed him. He's not different just because he made a, a comment that, uh, you know, sort of crossed the line somewhere. Now, what I would know is that Simon & Schuster is going to get no benefit whatsoever from fighting Milo in this case, because the fight is just going to remind everybody and reiterate that they signed him in the first place. And worse, now Milo has a platform to, f to play free speech martyr. But here's what really concerns me is how the case is going to affect business going forward at Simon & Schuster and at the other major houses. Well, all the houses watching this decide to shy away from publishing controversial voices. I'm not a fan of Milo's, but I am a fan of publishing controversial voices. So are house lawyers going to try to craft morals clauses now to avoid these kinds of litigation in future book contracts? I think those would be concerning developments, to say the least. You know, again, I'll just say, as you know, I never really thought it was a great idea for Simon & Schuster to sign Milo, but the idea to dump him, that may have even been worse. Well, you know, Andrew, it's a cause for reflection indeed on the unintended consequences of even sometimes the best of intentions. And on Bastille Day, I'm guessing that Milo and Simon and & Schuster will want to rely on the wisdom of Victor Hugo, who said, perseverance is the secret of all triumphs. So Justice Beyond the Book will persevere every Friday to bring listeners the latest news and insights on books and their authors. Andrew Albanese will do that every week for us. He's Publishers Weekly senior writer. Thanks for joining me on Beyond the Book, Andrew. My pleasure, as always. 
Coming up next on Beyond the Book, the world of media and particularly digital media may seem to you and me as omnipresent as air, but millions around the globe live shut out from it. Palo Alto-based Benetech is a nonprofit with a single focus on developing technology for social good. As Brad Turner tells me, an information famine is a pressing global problem. At Benetech, we believe that knowledge is a fundamental human right. And so Bookshare is really our way of trying to get information to people who otherwise wouldn't have access to it. Because these are, these, these are the people who are really the most left out. Fighting the Information Famine, next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries RightsDirect and Ixis drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book.